Alright, everybody, I hope saw that there is a new stack of notes, so if you haven't grabbed that yet, you'll want to do that. If you missed a previous week, uh, on the right are the previous week's notes, and then on the left is the additional installment for tonight. So, Alright, well we'll go ahead and get going so we can... Uh, Got to kind of make up for what we missed last weekend. We uh, got a little bit of a late start due to the choo-choo train last week on my part. So uh, thankfully made it with plenty of time to spare this evening. All right, well, let me open in prayer and then we'll uh, pick up where we left off last week. We're going to just say a few more things about the end of chapter two and then move into chapter three for tonight. Uh, So let me open in prayer and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to study your word and we just pray for wisdom and insight as we... Uh, look at the scripture tonight. I pray that you would help us to discern truth and to apply it to our lives. Uh, we know that we need wisdom, particularly in our day and age. Uh, and you've said that if any of us lacks wisdom, to ask you and you give uh, generously and without reproach. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant us wisdom, that we might know you and that we might walk with you and be faithful to be discerning and uh, that we might communicate truth and light through our lives and through our knowledge of your word. We thank you that uh, you've provided us all we need for life and godliness. And we pray that you would just be with us tonight. Grant us grace and mercy as we seek to know you better through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. uh, We are on page 76 of the notes. And I just want to uh, rehearse this latter section of verses, beginning verse 12 through 22 of uh, chapter 2. And then to say a few more words about this. So the latter part of chapter 2, you remember, is uh, this is the second speech that the Father is giving. Chapter 2 is the Father's second speech. And in this speech, he takes a much more gentle and gracious tone. There are no commands in this chapter, simply an exhortation and motivation. If you do this, then this will happen. And the Father promises the benefits of wisdom. And one of the major benefits of wisdom in this chapter is it will rescue the young man. It will rescue him from all sorts of people that want to lead him astray. So in verses 12 to 15, there are perverse or wicked men who want to draw him away. And then we looked a little bit last week at verses 16 to 22 and the wayward woman or the outside woman. And I... Uh, gave some reasons why I think that this is a married, upper-class Israelite woman who would be attractive to the young man and and would draw him away from the right path. So let me read uh, these last several verses, and we want to make a few more comments about this last paragraph. Beginning in verse 12, Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Surely her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the paths of life. Thus you will walk in the ways of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land, and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the unfaithful will be torn from it. 
So last week we saw uh, some more information about this wayward woman who would be attracted to the young man. And so uh, we really ended on the bottom of page 77. And I want to talk just a little bit more about uh, her house. Verse 18 says that surely her house leads down to death. Uh, I'm sure as you walk around your neighborhoods this time of year, as I do, uh, you see some some interesting decorations uh, getting ready for next week, which seems to be becoming one of the favorite holidays of people, uh, right? Halloween. And so uh, as you walk by, sometimes you're sort of struck by some of the very gory and graphic details that some people enjoy putting in their lawn. There's one uh, house in particular in our neighborhood that's known as you know, the house of horror, so to speak, where uh, he goes to extreme lengths to create this Halloween type of uh, scenario at his house, right? Well, Solomon here is essentially, if we might call it this, uh, giving us the, the very first house of horrors, and that is the house of the wayward woman. And he says in verse 18 that her house leads down to death. And so I want to just talk about two points related to this. The first is uh, this verb here of leading down. I would translate this verse in the following way. Her house slides down to death. Her channels or traps her paths down to the abode of departed spirits. Now, the question is, what does Solomon mean by this? Does the wayward woman really take the young man down to the path of death? And when he says that her house is the abode of departed spirits, what what is that communicating? That seems like strong and graphic language. What is he trying to warn the young man about with regard to this particular woman that would be attractive to him? Why does he say it so, so forcefully? What's he trying to get across? Any thoughts? Something you can't come back from. It's going to take you. I have friends today that are still that way. They're never going to change. So, in that sense, it's like death. Yeah. There's there's no no return. Okay. They're hooked on basically sex with someone that they've never seen, and they will not, they just don't care. Right. I don't know if it's the excitement or what. Yeah. Right. And they hold on to that sin and nourish it, and it consumes them. Right? Okay, so so he's very saying very forcefully here that her house is the fast track to hell, if we could say it that way. And uh, it leads down. And this word to lead down really means something that's slippery or sinks or uh, something that collapses. So the idea is it, it will draw you in like a Venus flytrap and close the door, the maw upon you, and you will not be able to escape. Uh, we used to live out in California, and we were always amazed by uh, where people would build houses, right? And so California doesn't get a lot of rain in certain parts of the state, uh, but one year that we were out there, they got torrential rains, and all there were a number of houses in Malibu that were built right on the cliff. And as the mud came down, the house just slid right down the slope, And it was amazing that anyone thought that was a good idea to build there. But that's sort of how I imagine this house. It's it's on a slippery track, and it's a slippery slope that leads down to death. So Solomon's warning the young man against being caught up in that. All right, and then secondly, on page 78, he says that 
in her house live uh, this interesting Hebrew word, Rephaim. So I want to talk a little bit about this. Uh, he says that the the dead are there. This word Rephaim is a Hebrew word that's attested in several languages. And what's really interesting is there used to be in the ancient Near East uh, these sort of like a seance, a, a conjuring party, if you could imagine it that way, where they would get around and chant these incantations so as to summon demons from the netherworld. And in particular, there was a civilization called Ugarit, which was closely related to Israel. It was just to the northwest of Israel. This is related to the area where Jezebel came from, if you know Tyre side in that area. So they were really hooked on Baal worship and on really sorcery and demon worship and things of this nature. And so one of the ancient incantations that they would say is, uh, you have, I have it there in the middle of the page, you have summoned the Rephaim of the netherworld, you have some commanded the council of the Didonites. Now the only reason I bring this up is it's interesting that the same word here, Rephaim, signifies in this context sort of the the people, the shades, the departed spirit of the netherworld. So it seems that Solomon maybe is picking up imagery that was common in the ancient Near East to talk about uh, the departed spirits of the netherworld, that land beyond, the shadow land. And he's saying that that's where the shades live. In other words, it will turn you into a ghost. It will consume you. It will You'll be part of the abode of departed spirits. So these are all images which I think are intended to sober up the young man to say, if you go there, it's your death sentence. So don't allow her to draw you in. She seems alluring and attractive. She seems like someone you would want to pursue. It seems exciting. But the end of it is death. And so be warned. Okay, so he... Uh, is very seriously warning the young man against that sort of thing. All right, so the bottom of page 78 there, we want to make some uh, notes about what this chapter does for us. Uh, One of the primary things that's interesting about chapter 2 is, remember we had chapter 1 was the first speech, and speeches 1 and 2 are calls to attention, meaning the father's trying to get the young man's attention, so he... His attention is directed to the Father and what he's about to say. And in speech one, he really seriously uh, confronts the young man about not being led away by gangs and those who would lead him to a life of violence. Then we have this uh, really confrontational speech by Lady Wisdom in the latter part of chapter one. And then we come to chapter two. And chapter two functions in several ways. Number one, it's a counterpart to to speech one because it also is a call to attention. So speeches one and two are calls to attention. But chapter two is a much gentler call. So it's not in your face like Lady Wisdom sort of is in the end of chapter one. It's really a more gentle summons. And what it does is it accomplishes in a nutshell all the speeches that will follow. So in other words, if we really took apart chapter two and looked at the nuts and bolts of it, we would see in miniature every topic that will be addressed in the remaining speeches. So I want to show how that's the case uh, as we work through this. Uh, If you go now to page 79, one other thing that's interesting about this chapter is it's constructed as a partial acrostic, if you will. 
And that is to say, uh, the first Hebrew letter, Aleph, begins verses 1, 5, and 9. The middle Hebrew letter begins verse 12, the midpoint of the poem, 16 and 20. So what the writer has done, Solomon here, is very artistically designed this speech so that it has symmetry and structure to it. And so if we look carefully at that, we see that there are several stanzas within this chapter, and each one is symmetrically outlined. So for instance, I have there in the middle, uh, at the end of the first paragraph on page 79, uh, you have a stanza of four lines, four lines, then three lines, four lines, four lines, and three lines. So it's a symmetrical pattern, four, four, three, four, four, three. And in that, you have a structure which is as follows. So you see there, uh, you have an exordium. An exordium is a fancy word for an introduction where your topic is introduced. So letter A, if you attend to my teachings, that's the first stanza, then you will attain true piety, verse 5. And then the second motivation, then you will know right behavior, verse 9. Then we get to the lesson, which is at the midpoint, verse 12 is the midpoint of the speech, and that's where the lesson is. This will help to save you. Verse 12 says, wisdom will save you. Some would suggest even that this is lady wisdom, a reference back to the first speech. Uh, wisdom will save you from wicked men and from wicked women, so that, verse 20, you will go on the right path, which is the salvation of the righteous. Okay, so if you take all this together, he's essentially saying, if you listen to what I'm saying, in the end, it will do what? It will save you and establish you in the land. Verse 21, the upright will live in the land. So there's a very clear structure uh, that helps to see how all this works out. Now, the last paragraph on page 79 at the bottom there, I want to talk about what I alluded to earlier, that we have in a nutshell here all the themes that will be later addressed. So for instance... Look at some examples here. Uh, the first theme, the theme of the wisdom seeker being drawn close to the Lord in a right relationship uh, in 2, 1 to 8 is taken up in 3, 1 to 12. Okay, so if you look again at chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, we have a focus here on the Lord, right? Verse 5, you will understand the fear of the Lord, find the knowledge of God. The Lord gives wisdom. So there's, there's a focus here on the connection between the Lord and wisdom. That will also be the topic of chapter 3, 1 to 12. The second theme, the theme of a close relationship between the wisdom seeker and wisdom herself. So 2, 9 to 11 uh, talks about how the wisdom seeker will have wisdom enter his or her heart, knowledge pleasant to the soul. This theme is later taken up in 3, 13 to 26 and 4, 1 to 9. Okay, number three, the theme of warning against wicked men 12 to 15, right? Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men. This is taken up again in 410 to 27. And then lastly, the theme of warning against the outside woman is taken up in the latter speeches, 5, 1 to 23, and 620 to 727. Uh, Murphy says this is a remarkable, even singular example of reprise. What this means is Hebrew literature in general likes repetition. Now, why do they do that? Uh, in the old days, uh, those who did not take a high view of Scripture said that this was an indication that uh, very clumsy writers had failed to realize they were repeating themselves and sort of going on this merry-go-round. 
But as you study it more and more, it's very clear that it's not accidental. It's a very sophisticated pattern that they follow. And repetition is important. Why? Because, number one, repetition is the key to learning, right? We need to learn it by repeating it over and over and over again. Uh, I found as I got as I get older that I can still memorize scripture, but the verses I know best are the verses I learned as a child because I repeated them over and over and over in my mind. And so repetition is very important. But that also gives us a clue as to what the author wants us to notice. If he simply says it once and moves on, we might forget that that's a topic that's particularly important. So repeating it helps us to get it and understand that's where he's going. So we see this here in the prologue. And I think another thing that this does is it shows us that one mind, one author is behind this entire section. Okay, so there's a cohesion there, uh, and it helps us to see that Solomon uh, is really uh, the one who is behind this. All right, page 80. Let's notice a couple other things here. Uh, Paul Coptic, who's written one of the commentaries that's uh, pretty good on Proverbs in the NIV application series, uh, he says that there are certain terms which get repeated several times in this chapter. One is upright. If you look at verse 7, uh, he holds victory in store for the upright. Okay, It's also found in verse 9, 13, and 21. This is uh, a tactic that is helpful to do. As you're studying a book of the Bible, for instance, Proverbs or any other book, one thing that can help you is if you notice repeated terms, that's something the author is usually doing to help us see it's a significant term. So upright, protect, guard, and then path, these are all repeated terms in the chapter. And so Coptic says one of the emphases of the chapter is God's gifts of wisdom and understanding are a guardian or a protection to keep the upright on the path of right relationship to God and man. Okay, so if we were to boil it down, this is one of the central messages here. Wisdom is a guardrail, right? It's a, it's a fence to keep us on the right path. Uh, if you've ever driven up in the mountains, you know how significant it is to have guardrails on the road because they keep you from falling off the cliff. I've been in some fairly hair-raising uh, hairpin turns in my life in different places and was thankful for the guardrail. Wisdom is that for the young man. It's a guardrail to keep him on the right path so he doesn't falter or go astray. All right, a uh, few other things here to mention. Uh, Bauman, for instance, uh, is saying that <clears throat> verses 1 to 11 are also a personification of Lady Wisdom. Now, here's a question we have to answer is whenever we see wisdom in the book of Proverbs, should we see this as lady wisdom or small w, just regular wisdom? And how do we know when one or the other is in view? Okay, so we'll see this again in chapter 3, for instance, not to get ahead of ourselves too much, but in chapter 3 and verse 13, we have an interlude, blessed is the man who finds wisdom. Should that be capital W, Lady Wisdom, or small w, Wisdom, simply as a virtue or as a, a, a desirable thing to have for the young man? So how do we know when Lady Wisdom is in view or just generic wisdom is in view? Anybody have any thoughts about that? How would you know 
if, if the NIV, for instance, translates it with a small w, we're assuming they're saying that that's just regular wisdom. But when they put it with a capital W, uh, it might be something more. So how do we know, though, if they're getting it right or how we should read that? Any thoughts? Probably not something you think about very often. Well, let's say it this way. In, in the prologue, chapters 1 to 9, is really the only part of the book where Lady Wisdom is a character, we could say, a literary character. And how do we know that in the prologue she's a literary character? She speaks. She speaks, right. So she's developed as a character. One of the primary ways that Hebrew literature develops a character is through speech, right? We don't know what Abraham looked like. You ever thought about this? We don't know what almost any biblical character actually looked like unless it was significant to drive the story in some way. We know that Sarah was beautiful because uh, in her 90s, she's still attracting the attention of the Egyptian pharaoh and Abimelech. And the text says she's very beautiful. But it never really dwells on physical features. So how does it develop a character? By what is said, what the character says. That's why, for instance, do you know who has the longest speech in the book of Joshua? Rahab. Rahab is developed as a character by her expression of faith in the Lord. So it's something you want to pick up as you read Old Testament stories is what people say. It's a significant window into their character. Well, Lady Wisdom talks, so she's a character in the prologue. But is she? does she make an appearance? Is, is there a cameo in unexpected places where wisdom pops in? Well, the answer is I don't know for sure because there's no clear distinction between one word means lady wisdom and another word means small w wisdom as an abstract concept. So lady wisdom may in fact be making a cameo in places like chapter 2 and verse 10 when it says wisdom will enter your heart. Is this wisdom as the personified lady wisdom? Perhaps it is. We don't know for sure, but we want to at least be reading with sensitivity to say maybe that's what's going on. And in fact, I'll argue that I think that is what's going on in chapter 3 and verse 13, that the man who finds wisdom here, it's it's lady wisdom, and it's a return uh, back to her. All right, so anyway, just something to keep in mind as you read, to be sensitive to these sorts of things. All right, the middle paragraph on page 80, uh, another thing to note about uh, this wayward woman, verse 17, it says, she ignored the covenant she made before God. Now, we've talked about this a little bit. What sort of a covenant is this? Is this the covenant that Israel made with God, or is this a personal covenant that she made with God? Probably the best understanding is this covenant is the marriage covenant. So uh, she has been married and now seems to be leaving that covenant. I have a quote there from Coptic in the middle of that paragraph. It says, in abandoning the covenant of marriage... This Israelite woman has, in effect, also severed her covenant relationship with God. Okay, so there's a sense in which, by violating her marriage covenant, she's also been unfaithful to God, because when we make a covenant before God, God is included, right, in terms of 
his presence, his authority. And so if we violate that promise, that vow, we're essentially severing uh, a commitment that we've made before God. And so uh, this woman seems to have uh, decided to retract that, and now she's become a wayward woman. All right, another thing just to keep in mind, we've already alluded to this, but in verses 21 and 22, it promises for the wisdom seeker, the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in that. I think it's it's better to see this as being tied dispensationally to the Mosaic Covenant and the Old Way, the Old Testament and its particular promises. I have a quote there from Deuteronomy 28.63 that if the people sinned, it said the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land you are entering to take possession of it. All right, so is this, this comes back to a question we addressed earlier in the course, is Proverbs an airtight promise that if you do this, you will succeed? In other words, is this a, a guarantee that if we pursue wisdom... We'll be able to live successfully in the land. We'll have longevity and stability and the blessing of the Lord. No. Okay, because we would see it as a general principle. But all things being equal, more often than not, this will be the case. So it's an incentive to pursue wisdom for that reason. Because more often than not, uh, we will find it to bring us success. Okay, so that's uh, really one of the, the reasons we are to pursue wisdom in that sense. Okay, so that's speech two from the father to son. Any questions about that speech before we continue? All right, so if you have your next section of notes, let's go to page 82. And now we're looking at speech three. Okay. And within the speeches, within the cycle of speeches, this is a call to remember. The calls to remember, if, if you recall, uh, have a lot of emphasis on not forgetting. Uh, so the calls to attention want to summon the attention of the young man, and now the young man is exhorted not to forget, to remember what he's been told. Okay, This is why we need review. Review is helpful. And this is a review for the young man. So I'll read this and then... Uh, we'll take it apart and, and make some comments. All right, chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled with overflowing, to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. 
All right, so speech three, uh, I've subtitled this, The Wise Father's Admonition and Appeal to Cling to His Insight. All right, so I want to just take a moment here and, and discuss this a little bit and inductively or as a group make observations about this text. We know that within these verses are probably some of the most well-known texts of the entire book, right? I, I know many people who... Uh, particularly verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, see as one of their favorite texts from Proverbs. Uh, we also, of course, want to see, well, what does it say in the context of this speech? Okay, But also, verses 11 and 12 are significant uh, because, for instance, the writer of Hebrews uh, alludes to this in saying that the Father, God the Father, chastens those whom he loves. And that idea is found here in verses 11 and 12. Okay, so there's a lot of fatherly warmth toward the Son. And it's not so much a sober warning as an encouragement, I think, to persevere, not to falter in His steps, but to continue this uh, at times difficult and challenging path toward wisdom. All right, so let me open it up for observations as you read through these verses and as uh, you hear these texts uh, what are some observations about the text that stand out to you why is the father saying this at this point remember it's coming on the heels of the second speech calling him to attention and now he seems to be giving a lot of these benefits of wisdom that will accrue to the young man if he pursues wisdom okay so observations Is the father overreaching here? Is he is he promising too much? Sorry. It's, it's almost yet another warning. Only this time he's telling him, he's telling us the do nots with a positive reason instead of instead of the warning about um, avoiding the negative. You know, do not fall after this woman. And, you know, do not do these other things. He's saying, don't forget wisdom. Don't. Don't forget the discipline you know, of the Lord. Don't don't let it how's how's it put it? Don't let it out of your sight. Right. Right. So he's so he's still telling us what not to do in the case of what not to avoid. Okay. Okay. And so touching on a, a topic here that is seemingly obvious here is we do have a movement toward Imperatives, right? We didn't see any imperatives in the last speech, but now we have several here. Uh, let love, faithfulness never leave you. Trust, don't be wise. Honor, do not despise. So we have several uh, imperatives here that changes the tone somewhat. Another comment someone had in the back? Or? I was just going to say, I think it talks about the rewards of following what the Father's instructed. So yes, he's he's giving several rewards here that are 
I think, an attractive thing for the young man. We'll see particularly uh, verse 2, these promises are often associated with royalty. That is to say, long life, peace, and prosperity. That triad occurs, for instance, in, in describing David's reign in the historical narratives of the Old Testament. So uh, if, you know, and I think it is the case here that this is, the book of Proverbs is intended to train the future socio-political leaders of Israel. That is, the princes who are going to be the next generation of leaders. And if that's the case, this would be something that they desire, a long life, peace, and prosperity. Right. I think, too, that he's uh, giving a little bit of understanding on what he means by the fear of the Lord, especially um, in uh, verses uh, 4, I mean, 5, 6, and 7, you know, about uh, to trust in all with all your heart, not to lean to your understanding, to submit to him, and not to be wise in your own eyes, and yeah. heart and evil. Right. Right. So... Uh, when, I, when I read this, I notice several things that, to me, sound like echoes from earlier texts. Uh, the idea of binding it around the neck, for instance, in verse 3, is similar to something he said in the first speech. Uh, but also, you're correct, that the idea of the fear of the Lord here, and now he's amplifying what that means. The contrast is to not be wise in your own eyes. Uh, there's another proverb that I quote frequently, I don't know if that says something about my life or where I'm at, but it's uh, the proverb that says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. So the idea is don't be smug thinking that you've got all the answers uh, because, you know, uh, it's not the case. You need to fear the Lord. I think it was, uh, was it Mark Twain who made comments along those lines and I'm roughly paraphrasing just about how uh, you know when he was a teenager he realized how ignorant and foolish his parents were and as he got older they suddenly wised up uh, but it wasn't really the parents right it was Mark Twain himself that realized he had been wise in his own eyes all right any other observations yes I think he also uh, wants him to be aware of the fact that when he does strengthen the Lord, and the Lord's going to bring him back and may feature some type of discipline. Okay, right. So that seems to be a prominent theme in this section. So let's think about that a little bit. Why? Why is when I read this, particularly as I come to the end, I get the sense that the young man might be discouraged, right? That. In other words, if he's really on this path to pursue wisdom, does it ever get discouraging to pursue wisdom? You know, as a, as a, and I can just speak for having been a young man, uh, when you seek to follow the Lord and live out his word, you're being extremely countercultural, right? It's much easier just to go with the flow, to live a life where you, give in to the flesh and just kind of go your own way because it's the natural thing to do. So perhaps we see in the sequence of speeches here an encouragement because the young man might be faltering a little bit and thinking, do I really want to pursue wisdom? Is it really worth the effort? I don't you know, get to 
do some of the things that my that people I know get to do and they seem to be okay and they're having a good time and maybe it's not so bad and so you begin to rehearse these deceptive lies in your mind and pretty soon your heart is sort of attracted to that uh, way of thinking and so the father seems to be saying don't get discouraged in your pursuit of wisdom keep at it the end will come but you have to keep with it and so a lot of these rewards that he's offering are not necessarily immediate paybacks, right? They're things that will eventually be yours. Like, how do you know that you're going to have a long life? Well, really, not until you get to the end of it. In other words, it's something that you, you know, you don't really know until you're there. So it's easy to take a shortcut and do things which uh, shorten your life without really thinking through, you know, you want to be around when you have grandkids and you want to have lived faithfully to that point. All right, any other observations about the text? All right, let me ask this. How do verses 5 and 6 fit into the speech? Because we often hear these verses recited. And and I think it's appropriate, certainly, to say we ought to be trusting in the Lord, not leaning on our own understanding. But what do these verses say within this speech that uh, help us to really understand what this speech is about? he's warning him not to do certain things to remember and he's reviewing everything and he's, he's reminding him to trust in the Lord rather than in his own perceptions and thinking going along with the, with the crowd may be a lot of fun but in the long run it's not going to be off. Right. right so and I think we have to see this as this proverb falls in the beginning parts of the book So it's when the young man is just starting on the path of wisdom. In other words, this is a guideline which will keep him on the right path. Now, of course, we can extrapolate it and apply it to a lot of areas of our life. And it's I think we can be aided in doing so. But I think the point here in this context is the young man who might get discouraged on the path of wisdom, who might want to give up the pursuit uh, is encouraged to continue trusting in the Lord and submit to Him because that's the way that you stay on the right path. Not be filled with your own way of thinking. Right? And this is a particularly susceptible temptation, I think, for young people to be wise in their own eyes and to be filled with uh, what they think are the right answers. It's been interesting to watch my own kids grow up and they suddenly reach a stage where I don't seem to know anything anymore. Right, uh, And I think I went through that, maybe, when I was around 14, 15, but I'm living it on the other end now. And so there's this susceptibility toward thinking you have all the answers, and Solomon is saying, no, that's not the case. Yeah. I'm wondering if he's also, uh, we always think of discipline as uh, correcting a child, but is he also referring to discipline in your, in your, your life, in your, in your faith in Christ by not straying? So you're talking on as part of the the body, as part of the assembly. I think so. Uh, we have indications. So, for instance, in a later speech, uh, he gives the example of someone who didn't heed the advice, and the the man says, "If only I had listened to the counsel." Uh, it gives a hint that I think is a legitimate hint that there's some sort of a, a peer pressure group 
that these young men are being trained in, which seems to foreshadow, um, you know, if we think of it from the New Testament perspective, what we have is the church. The church is there to help us, encourage us, guide us. And so, yes, we need accountability and we need the encouragement of others. Uh, This is what the writer of Hebrews says, not to forsake the assembling so much more as you see the day approaching. We need that encouragement to continue on the right path. So, yeah, I agree. Sir? I have a question. uh, You had mentioned a few minutes ago about, about, you know, we have to swim upstream and we're constantly battling the culture. And this is written in the Old Testament. It's written to the nation of Israel. Okay? And the thing is, is, uh, you know, like, okay, a Christian in the workplace or whatever, in the, in, yeah, in the workplace, okay, the guys or the group is going to go out to the bar, hang out, do whatever they do at the bar, and uh, the Christian says no, okay? But uh, how much did they have to swim upstream in the Old Testament because uh, there wasn't the bar, was there? In, um, in Old Testament times? Yeah, not, I guess, as, as we would have those modern establishments. Uh, that doesn't mean that they weren't swimming upstream. And, and the reason I say this is read the book of Judges. And if you're a godly Israelite, you're countercultural in that scenario. The reason is idolatry was rife. Remember, Elijah says, I don't think I can even put seven thousand people, you know, God tells him there's seven thousand people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal and Elijah doesn't believe him. I mean, so there were times where it was very dark. There was idolatry. Uh, so to be a true believer in the Lord is always countercultural, I would say, from the very beginning, uh, because you have uh, a godly line, which is always the minority. Uh, throughout Israel's history, uh, another thing, and I see this Everywhere, but you know, as you study it, uh, look at the names of people and how often uh, foreign gods are included in the name. So even Gideon is also called Jeroboam because he's named after a Canaanite god. It, it's everywhere. So um, I would say there is swimming upstream, and that's why these young men are to be protected. So, for instance, in, in the whole history of Israel, there was never a good king. There was never a good king. In Judah, there were oh, you're talking about the, northern the northern kingdom. In yeah. Judah, there are seven quasi-good kings, but really only two that that never have anything bad, more or less, spoken of them. Hezekiah, who even though he doesn't have something bad, he does something foolish in letting the Babylonians come in and see everything. And then Josiah, who is killed in a sort of foolish battle where he really shouldn't have gone after the Egyptians. So all this to say, even the good guys had something of a checkered faith relationship with the Lord. Uh, you know, I could give other examples, but I, I would say that it is it is swimming upstream. Uh, so, you know, now, the flip side of that is when we look at the Old Testament, you know, it seems like, well, Israel is God's people, so aren't there always, you know, God-fearers within the nation? I guess I would say yes and no. I, there's a, There seems to be... Uh, the Bible talks about it this way, that the lamp of David, there's always a light there. Uh, but even in the, in the midst of that, there's a lot of idolatry. There's a lot of uh, foreign cultures that are influencing the Israelites. 
I'm reading through Jeremiah right now and talk about a discouraging, depressing book, what Jeremiah had to contend with in his day. Uh, just at every turn, people are opposing him. Um, so I, I don't know, that's a long answer, but I, I would see it as countercultural to an extent uh, because Satan has always been at work in the world. Okay, all right, so, so chapter 3 here is an encouragement for the young man to keep going, not to give up. And he's really told that if he does so, and if he follows these imperatives, blessings will come. They may not be immediate, but certain things will follow. Uh, and so let's look at a few of these that I think are, are significant. I want to just make a note about uh, verse 1. He begins here by saying, My son, do not forget my teaching. This word teaching or instruction is a significant one. I just want to pause for a moment and talk about this. This is the Hebrew word Torah. Okay, you may have heard this word before. It's usually translated law in the Old Testament. And the idea is, is uh, instruction is another way to translate it. And So teaching, direction, or instruction. Now the question becomes... Uh, whenever Torah is used in Proverbs, is it always talking about instruction or does it ever talk about Torah as in law in a more technical sense as the law of Moses? And if we go one way or the other, how does the instruction, i.e. teaching of the father, relate to the instruction, i.e. the law of the Lord? So in other words, is the Father's instruction as authoritative as the Lord's instruction is the Father giving law? Okay, so that's a, a question we have to think through. If you look at the middle of the paragraph here, I have a, a statement from uh, about ends and his view. Let me just say preface it with a sentence before that. The term Torah occurs 220 times in the Old Testament, 13 times in Proverbs. Within its uses in the Old Testament, there are really four areas it's used. Okay, and you can look at those. The third area is the one I'm concerned with, and that's human instructions for godly living. This seems to be the primary way that it's used here. So, for instance, the term Torah occurs six times in the prologue. Remember, the prologue is chapters 1 to 9. And every time it's connected to the parents' training. It can be the father's teaching. It can be the mother's teaching. Okay, so it's six times in the prologue and then seven times in the rest of the book. Okay, it occurs once in the first Solomon connect collection, uh, talking about the instruction of the wise. And then we have a proliferation of the term in chapter 28. And I want to talk a little bit about this. Uh, let's look... Why don't we look there? Chapter 28 and verse 4. Now, I have uh, the older NIV as a text here, but the text that you have, uh, well, you don't have a text for this verse, uh, is the newer NIV, 2011. The older NIV, verse 4 of chapter 28, says, Those who forsake the law... Praise the wicked, but those who keep the law resist them. Now, does anyone have a 2011 NIV? Okay, how does that verse read? Those who forsake instruction praise the wicked, but those who heed it resist them. Okay, so what the new NIV has done is said, this word Torah, 
must mean instruction everywhere in the book, 13 times. So they went through and they changed several verses where they had earlier translated it as law. So as I read here, those who forsake the law. And particularly in this chapter 28, it occurs, see, six, seven, I think it's five times within the space of 28 and 29. And most versions other than the NIV, translate these instances as law. So, for instance, if you look at the bottom of the page there, the ESV, NASB, Holman Christian Standard, and New King James translate these five occurrences. When I say the five occurrences, these are 28.4, verse 7, verse 9, and 29.18 as law. Law. And this movement toward a more materialized understanding of the term results from the binding nature of the command given to the young addressee. So he's told here, those who forsake the law praise the wicked. All right, so why am I even bringing this up? What difference does it make? Uh, In this sense, that I think the term teaching can mean law, and I think particularly in the latter part of the book here, it means law in several instances. Why this is important is, In the Hebrew way of speaking, if you heard this book read to you in Hebrew, it's the same word. And what this does is it links the Father's instruction to the Lord's instruction. They're both Torah. So all that to say is uh, that that you're, you're learning Torah first from your dad and mom, and then Torah from the Lord. So what the parents teach is really in keeping with what the Lord himself teaches. So the young man is first to learn from the parents and then later uh, to learn from the Lord in a more formalized sense, Torah. Okay, so whenever we see instruction, if we go back to chapter 3 and verse 1, whenever we see teaching or instruction, just keep in mind that's a Hebrew word, Torah, which in the Hebrew reader immediately links back to God's Torah. And it's a way to keep us uh, cognizant of the fact that God is instructing us. Uh, As Van Leeuwen says, uh, these are the norms for human existence that cannot be separated from God. So in other words, it's his authority uh, that is helping us to uh, grow and learn. All right, so he says here to not forget the teaching, to keep the commands in his heart. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, some of the things related to this. Um, I want to just bring up, I think I get to this on the next page, uh, verse 4, for instance, chapter 3 and verse 4. It says, then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Uh, does that phrase remind you of anything from the New Testament? Remember uh, Luke 2.52, right, that... Uh, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I think we're intended to see Jesus as growing in wisdom, sort of according to the outline of Proverbs, that even at the age of 12, he's already uh, on the path toward wisdom, and he's uh, disciplining himself to that end. And so that's an encouragement to us also to follow that path. All right. I note here in the middle of this page, 83, Proverbs 3, 1 to 12 is taking up a theme from Proverbs 2. 
And that is the intimacy that comes between the Lord and the wisdom seeker. So, for instance, what's uh, interesting about this passage is how often the Lord's name is mentioned. So, for instance, uh, verse 5, trust in the Lord. Verse 7, fear the Lord. Verse 9, honor the Lord. Verse 11, do not despise the Lord's discipline. So remember, when we're reading through this, we want to pay attention to those repeated terms. And so here, one of the repeated terms is the Lord. It's steeped in godly wisdom that is related to the Lord and his uh, gift of wisdom to the young man. Now, another phrase that's interesting here is uh, he talks about the discipline of the Lord. For instance, in verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. This is the only place in Proverbs where the phrase, the discipline of the Lord, is found. And the expression is somewhat unusual, almost startling. As the human father elsewhere meets out disciplinary correction. So in other words, this is the only place where the Lord is disciplining. So why does the father here bring in the Lord's discipline? Usually it's the father disciplining why is it here the Lord's discipline? Any thoughts? Because he does it because he loves us. Okay, he does it because he loves us. Right. So let me think of it this way. If, if the Father is, I think, implicitly linking his instruction with the Lord's instruction... Could it be that he's also doing that with his discipline? In other words, when the father disciplines, that's really to be linked with the Lord's discipline. Now, we know, of course, we know people, we may have had this experience ourselves to have fathers who are, you know, not godly and are abusive rather than kind in their discipline. But the writer of Hebrews picks up on this to show that a really loving father is not one who abandons his children to their own way. A loving father is one who corrects them, who helps them to learn right from wrong, right? And, and so basic an example, you know, if, if I love my kids, I won't let them play in the street, right? Because I know there are dangers there. Uh, so for a loving father, there has to be correction. So I think here the link is the father's correction is ultimately the Lord's correction and i think the father is is saying in an implicit sort of way you know to the young man sort of taking him aside and saying listen this wisdom that i want to give you it's not just me right it's not just what i have to say as if i'm particularly enlightened and you know if you just listen to me all your problems will go away what he's really saying is this is between you and god right so for instance this is why uh, i've found it to be successful when i'm disciplining my own children to bring in scripture because it's not just me saying stop doing that because it bugs me or whatever it's bringing in scripture because you know we want to be pleasing to the lord what does the lord say about this and so automatically the authority there is between god and the person i think this is what the the father solomon wants to do is say listen your pursuit of wisdom is ultimately between you and god it's not simply a matter of being like me or not like me. It's you and the Lord. So pursue it for that sake so that the Lord will help you to grow. Because ultimately, the, 
the goal at the end, right, the prize in the Cracker Jack box is not uh, just success, but it's the Lord himself uh, having a relationship with the Lord and embracing Yahweh himself, the Lord. All right. Um, Excuse me. Isn't there the idea, too, of, uh, I mean, <clears throat> eventually, you know, the son is going to get old enough that, uh, that the, the father's not going to physically discipline him. Right. But but that young man going into adulthood himself needs to know that if he's going to try to live for the Lord, it's going to be a lifelong still of discipline, and God will discipline him. Right. Uh, you know, even though his own physical dad won't be able to anymore. Right. Right. And I think we would all say as, as fathers, we can readily think of times where we failed to discipline for the right reasons as well. So not only, you know, the father may die an untimely death, but even when the father fails, ultimately the Lord is really the sovereign one who's involved here in this pursuit of wisdom. So, yes, it's a, it's a good reminder. It transcends the father's own limitations, if you will, in terms of uh, how discipline is to be meted out. Okay, let me... Uh, we'll, I, I don't think we have time to get to the next section, so let me just end with this paragraph here on 84. Uh, there seem to be echoes in 3.4. I alluded to this. Uh, Luke's description of the young Jesus in Luke 2.52 uh, to, that he increased in wisdom. Also, the Torah, the law, appears more concretely in this section. Uh, so verse 3 says, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And this seems to echo language from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, this was the well-known passage in how uh, parents are to train their children. Remember Deuteronomy 6? The Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So I would say that this, I think, is an echo of Deuteronomy 6 in the sense that the young man is to internalize them. He's to bind them. He's to write them. These are actions which suggest he will not let them go. He continues to keep them. Now, we know that in Judaism, the Jews eventually took this very literally. And when Jesus confronts the Pharisees, you know, they have their phylacteries where they have it in a box and they bind it and... I went to Israel a few years ago and, and saw men doing this uh, near the wailing wall. They were binding straps around their arms, and this is how they would pray. Well, the point here is the physical token signifies a spiritual reality. So in other words, yes, we write it, but it, that's not an end in and of itself if the heart's not there. And so Deuteronomy 6 is saying, train your children everywhere you go. There's always a learning moment. And so here the father is saying, do that on the inside internalize that truth so you don't let it go hold tightly to it because there will be days you want to give up the pursuit of wisdom but don't do it pursue it wholeheartedly internalize it and the rewards will come that's the promise all right this is a good place to stop thanks for your good attention tonight we'll pick up there uh, lord willing next week